excited to be here this morning uh, as we begin the fourth and final chapter of the book of 2 Timothy, continuing in our series as we've been trucking along, passing the torch. Uh, we're specifically going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, so if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you don't have your Bible with you, there are Bibles on the back. If you don't own a Bible, please grab one of the Bibles on the back table back there and take it home with you. Uh, if you're just now joining us in this series, or if you're new to Substance, the book of 2 Timothy, um, or, or the, the letter of 2 Timothy, was written by the Apostle Paul to his young ministry partner, Timothy, as you might have guessed. And Paul wrote this letter for the purpose of discipling Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor. And Timothy and his church members were walking through a very difficult season of life and ministry. So remember, we've been looking at this word discipling. To disciple someone is to help them to love and follow Jesus. It is to help them adopt Jesus' passions and priorities. So Paul wrote this letter to Pastor Timothy as well as the other Christians in Ephesus in order to help them to love and follow and exemplify Jesus in the midst of opposition, which was false teaching from these Gnostic teachers, as well as uh, loving and following Jesus in the midst of growing threats of physical persecution. So that's kind of the tone in which this letter would have been received by Timothy. In last week's passage, specifically chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul recalled and celebrated Timothy's gospel conversion as a young boy, and then he celebrated Timothy's commitment to gospel ministry. And in verses 16 and 17, as Pastor Jeff led us through them, Paul reminded Timothy that the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible upon which Christian life and ministry is based, the scriptures are God-breathed, meaning this, they are inspired by God himself. When we read the words of Scripture, church, we must believe and understand that we are hearing the voice of God. Praise the Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God, as Paul wrote in last week's passage, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture Every glorious line from Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God and it is profitable to us for teaching what we're doing right now for reproof and correction and training in righteousness that men and women of God would be complete and equipped for every good work, every good work. And so with that fresh in our minds, let's turn our focus to our passage this morning. Let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is Paul continuing this, this stream of consciousness, this thought about Scripture to Timothy. And he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that Day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, remind us that we have just heard from you and we thank you. Let us never not marvel at that that the God who created and who holds and sustains the cosmos desired so much to speak to his people that he would be known and that, Lord, we would know ourselves by that, that we would be equipped, Lord, with the gospel to be saved from sin and then to walk in the righteousness that Christ has afforded us. Yes, and amen to all of that, Lord, and let it be that we celebrate this word. Teach it to our hearts, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, I, uh, I caught up with a, a friend who graduated from the same small Christian school as my wife and I, and having recently just visited, he, he informed me that not a whole lot has changed, but one major thing has changed. And it has to do with the philosophy of their chapel meetings. So the the students are still required to attend chapel three times a week, but the philosophy has shifted in that the preachers who fill the pulpit for those times aren't really preaching the word anymore. What they've done is that they've kind of drifted off into these motivational stories in the name of cultural relevance and and suiting the the students' desires, trying to speak to where they're at, these preachers have kind of put down the word and adopted these storytelling tactics. They even brought in recently a self-described tree theologian. And he got up and he took the pulpit and he preached about trees Now, the justifier in the whole thing is that these trees were the ones that were mentioned in the Bible, but nonetheless, his content from beginning to end was stories about trees. I'm afraid that this isn't an isolated issue, and I think it's fair to say that a trend is not only forming, but has formed amongst many of the churches in America where more and more pastors are putting down the word of God and picking up varying degrees of storytelling tactics just in, in, in the name of cultural relevance, giving the people what they want to hear. And while 
these pastors are primarily responsible for a, such a foolish compromise as this, a compromise that I believe that they, they will be held accountable for. While it is these pastors, that it is primarily their responsibility, the blame should not be placed solely upon their shoulders because this, the people, the congregants themselves are also at fault. Instead of demanding as the body of Christ that God's word be preached from the pulpit, they've grown content with pastoral pep talks that might start with a verse or two but the subject matter is really divorced from any rooting of passage of, of, of Scripture. Now, in general, in broad brush terms, it seems that 21st century Christians, this is sobering, we don't really want to hear the Bible preached. We'd rather have our ears scratched like the Ephesians in today's passage. And ultimately, the reason why most 21st century Christians, it seems, don't want to hear the Bible preached is because we don't ultimately believe that the Bible is the word of God, which is profitable to us in every way imaginable. We don't ultimately believe that it is only by the word of God that we understand who God is. We don't ultimately believe that it is only by the word of God that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. We don't ultimately believe that it is only by the word of God that we learn what God has graciously done to reconcile sinners like us to himself. We don't ultimately believe Romans 10 that it is only by hearing the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have any hope of coming to saving faith in him. We don't ultimately believe these things in broad brush terms in 21st century American churches because if we did, more of our churches would be demanding the Bible be preached from the pulpit. More of our preachers would refuse to offer anything less. We don't ultimately believe the Bible to be the inspired and errant word of God because if we did, would not more of our personal time be given to savoring the scriptures, pouring into them that we might be poured into by his gracious word? More of our book clubs and our group studies would be actually Bible-focused rather than on someone else's thoughts about someone else's thoughts about a scripture or two, which is what most book studies are these days. More of us, I think, would spend time relishing in the memorization of scripture if we really apprehended and clenched onto this idea that this Bible is God speaking to us. Brothers and sisters, there is a grave difference between merely saying we believe the Bible is God's glorious word and actually believing it. As Pastor Jeff has shared the last few weeks, what we truly believe is ultimately revealed by our actions. 
What I believe is ultimately not what I say I believe. What I believe is what I do. So if you and I want to know what we really believe about this word of God, we simply just need to take note of how we treat the word of God on a daily basis. At the heart of today's passage is a solemn warning to Timothy and his church and to us. Only the word of God is able to guide us and equip us and preserve us by the power of the Holy Spirit until Christ's glorious return. And so in the meantime, we must preach it. We must prize it. Lest our fleshly passions and our itching ears carry us off into myths that cannot ultimately save us. And so the title of my sermon is pretty straightforward, Preach the Word. And in the time we have left, we're going to consider three ideas, three things from today's passage. We're going to look at number one, the charge, number two, the reason, and number three, the reward. The charge in verses one and two that Paul gives to Timothy to preach the Word. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at the reason for this charge to preach the Word in verses three through seven. And then we're going to look at, briefly, at the end, the reward, the glorious reward in verse 8 for completing this charge. So let's look at number 1. Paul writes in verse 1, you can see immediately how I got to the word, the charge, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, it's not that Christ Jesus isn't God here in this sentence, More like, I charge you in the presence of God, specifically God the Son, who is to judge the living and the dead when he appears. By his appearing and by his kingdom, are Paul words. And the kingdom is is Jesus' rule and reign and dominion and authority. It's in light of all of this. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, Timothy. Preach the word. This is is a serious charge calling as witnesses God the Father and God the Son. Paul grounds this charge in the certain reality that God is not only watching Timothy and listening to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of his preaching, but he's ultimately going to hold Timothy accountable for it. The reality of Christ's imminent physical bodily return is an important incentive here with Paul. See, just like us, Timothy might have been prone to some nearsightedness. See, it's easy to get preoccupied in the day-to-day grind, the stuff of life, rather than keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the very certain reality that the living God is coming back. He is coming, and it could be any moment. How, I, 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 was, I was processing this this week, and I was thinking to myself, how much more joy and zeal and excitement and expectancy would characterize my daily life if I were to really live and work and minister as if Jesus were returning today? how my passions and priorities would shift if I were certain that Christ is almost here and that time is of the essence and the Holy Spirit has been poured out in order that I might get going in preparations for the King's glorious return. 
I was thinking to myself how much more I might hunger and thirst for his righteousness, devoting myself to his word and prayer and discipleship and mission if I were only convinced that the resurrected Christ were on his way. I demonstrate, in fact, that often I, I don't live with that focus, that, 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 that farsightedness. I'm, I'm too nearsighted. Think of the boldness that we might have toward the unbelieving cashier at Bueller's if we were thinking, oh, Jesus is on his way. He's coming. He's coming. Think about the boldness. Think about the urgency we would place on picking up the phone and calling that relative or that friend who is not walking with the Lord who is coming. Think of all the prayers we would pray and sins we would confess and people we would invite into our homes if we were convinced that the time is near. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Herald the scriptures, Timothy. Proclaim the Bible, Timothy. Leave the motivational speeches to Tony Robbins and leave the chicken soup for the soul stuff to Oprah. Preach God's word because only God's word is inspired. Only scripture is without error in all that it affirms. Only the Bible is able to make us wise for salvation as we saw in 3.15 last week. Only God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword and able to cut through the folly of our fallen thinking, teaching us to renounce the ungodliness that so easily creeps up into who we are and, 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 and teaching us to place our hope in the death and burial and resurrection, the substitutionary work of Christ. Paul is getting at this. If you really believe that scripture teaches all of those things, Timothy, why the heck would you preach anything else? Do what you've been commissioned to do. As we read about, you know, as fanning into flame the gift that God had given him in chapter one, preach that word, Timothy. Because the Bible, not our clever stories, the Bible, every majestic verse from Genesis to Revelation is our plumb line for absolute and authoritative truth. And do we believe, church, that it profits us every time we open it? Now, this might get me some angry emails, but I believe that... the. A lot of preachers today might have the best of intentions by putting down the word and picking up fluffier things to talk about from the pulpit, but if they are not ultimately heralding the word of God, they are preaching myths and should categorically be considered false teachers. And it's so prevalent. Revelation twenty two eighteen says that if anyone adds words to Scripture, preaching their own words as if they were the Bible, or if anyone takes away from the words of Scripture, God will remove them from the tree of life. He is serious about his word. It's no wonder that Paul gives Timothy such a strong warning and a solemn charge to preach it in season or out of season, whether Timothy feels like it or not, 
Whether it's an opportune time or not, whether people want to hear it or not, just like Timothy, pastors today might be tempted to be silent in the face of opposition. They might be tempted to, to preach to please the crowd or the, or the tithers. We might be tempted to preach the fluffy stuff and avoid difficult passage, but just like it was in the medieval ages, it's not up to the king's messenger to herald only the pleasant portions of the king's edict. That's called treason. The king's messenger is to herald the king's message word for word, no matter the repercussions. And that often meant death for some of those messengers. So too, Timothy is to reprove and rebuke, meaning he is to confront those in grace and love who are believing bits and pieces of heretical, Gnostic, false teaching, and he is to then exhort He's to encourage those of his congregation who are actually listening to and following the gospel of the scriptures. And this is something that I confess to you. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a pessimist, so I'm, I'm always looking at the rebuke. But this church needs to be encouraged on many fronts. Dudes and dudettes, you are in the word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that the truth is heralded from the pulpit by God's grace, praise the Lord that we rally around the word in our community groups each week. Get hungrier for it. Keep it up, Substance Church. Feast on the word. Let's do this. And Timothy is supposed to do this week after week after week after week with complete patience and teaching. The pastor's job description is actually pretty clear. Preach the word. It's not up for debate. And I thank God, and maybe you can echo with me, I thank God for the pastors in my life who have done just that, who have stood up front on the pulpit and they've said the difficult things that needed to be said because they're life. I praise God for them. This, uh, this right here is a snippet that I'm about to read. Uh, this is what all of our pastor elders are charged with here at Substance. This is a question that I was asked in October. Will you commit to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God's inerrant word in season and out without apology and without compromise, not shrinking to declare the whole counsel of God? What a great charge. That was line one. Hallelujah. And I would ask for you, brothers and sisters, will you please pray for your pastors, for the pastor elders of this church, for the elders in process and in, in training. God, you, guys, lift us up, please. Because I might be prone to, I, my, my camp is uh, easily, I, I, what, what am I looking for? It's I preach the scriptures, but I could easily, easily do so to my own glory, and I wrestle with that every week, which is to miss the, the entire point. So please pray for me. Please pray for Pastor Ronnie and Jeff and Zach and, and, and all of us. Paul's charge to Timothy, preach the word, inner, inner out of season, confront, correct, and encourage with complete patience. Point number two, let's look at the reason for such a charge. It's a twofold reason. 
the first fold, is because most everyone else is abandoning the word. Paul writes in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound, and that word sound is healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. So Paul's stream of thought is that sound teaching is truthful teaching and truthful teaching only comes from God's word, only from the scriptures, only from the Bible. But the, Paul, the time that, that Paul is warning Timothy about, according to chapter 3, verse 1, in the, in the last days, this difficult time that's coming, well, that time has already arrived. When the people of Ephesus, they're, they're not enduring sound teaching and preaching of God's word. That word endure, that they won't endure it, is that they won't tolerate it. They won't put up with it. And the reason that they won't is made clear in Romans chapter 8 because the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law, his word, because it cannot. It's not been renewed. And so the second half of verse 3, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turning away from listening to the truth and wandering into myths just like Thomas Jefferson went through the Bible and cut out all the verses he found disagreeable, people will naturally cut out preachers whose biblical messages are found disagreeable. They'll surround themselves, accumulate for themselves a tiny little fortress of teachers who will tell them ultimately only what they want to hear. Only that which makes them feel good. Only that which affirms their already held beliefs and views and opinions. And ultimately, the grave error is that the object of this supposed Christian worship is not God, but self. Paul's emphasis here in this portion isn't so much on the false teachers but on those who entertain their false teachings. And, and lest we forget, false teaching is, is many times not obvious. It's, it's, it's not super like, you know, bad is good and, and the devil is God. That's super obvious. But the kind of false teaching that's hardest to detect, the kind that the enemy most often uses, is teaching that is simply man-centered, with a little bit of the scriptures sprinkled here and there and everywhere. It's not God-centered. It's a kind of teaching that undermines God's ultimate biblical supremacy and biblical authority and places us and our desires on the throne. So if you listen carefully enough to many of the, 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 the preachers on TV, honestly, are easy. If you, if you listen to, to many of the preachers on TV, it will become clear, wait, He's preaching that, that, that money and not Christ is ultimately what matters. He's preaching ultimately that, the, the, the gift, that a gift of healing, not Christ, is ultimately what matters. Or even harder to detect in many of our churches, he's preaching that 
our comfort and convenience, not Christ. And the call to the cross is ultimately what matters. And so the first half of Paul's reason here for charging Timothy to preach the word is for the sake of the people. No one else is going to be preaching the word, so Timothy must, because if he doesn't, what other hope will these people have of hearing the true gospel? Paul continues in verse 5, though, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. That is to mean clear-headed. Be clear-headed, endure suffering, endure the opposition, and endure the seasons when people won't endure the word of God. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, and that literally means to do the work of speaking the gospel. Do the work of it. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Timothy shouldn't expect that he will fulfill his ministry, which is to endure suffering of opposition and, and doing the work of preaching the gospel. He shouldn't expect to fulfill this ministry if he does not maintain sober mindedness, clear thinking. In contrast to those whose unclear thinking has led them off into myths that have no truth basis, Timothy must have his mind renewed day after day and hour after hour. And where else do we think that our foggy, fleshly thinking is made clear other than the word of God? This is where we get sober-mindedness. It is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path Holy Spirit, give us a hunger in this church for your word. And in doing so, as Timothy fulfills his ministry, he is carrying the torch that Paul once carried and handed off to him. The second half of the reason for Paul's charge is that it is now Timothy's turn to be the primary uh, torch carrier because Paul is about to be executed. He writes in 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows this is the end. The process has already begun, and similar to the the drink offerings that we read about in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Paul's life is being poured out as a sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of the gospel. I love the, 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 the passive voice that Paul uses. He is being poured out. The passive voice here signifies that it is God, not Rome, who has ultimate control over what's happening to him right now. He's being poured out as a sacrifice for the gospel. As was the case with Christ on the cross, Paul's execution is not a defeat, it's a victory. And so Timothy needn't fear for Paul. Paul is crossing crossing the finish line. He says it himself in verse seven, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Like the good soldier that Paul wrote about in chapter two, verse four, he's kept himself untangled from civilian pursuits and he has fought And like the well-trained athlete that he described in 2, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul has run and finished. 
He has worked. He's given all of his energy to the task of Christian life and ministry. He has believed the gospel message that Christ died and was raised to save sinners and he's given every last drop to carry the torch of that message forward. All three statements in verse 7 serve to emphasize the same point. Paul has fulfilled his ministry by God's grace. He has worked out his salvation, as he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, with fear and trembling. But, but before we put all of the glory on Paul's shoulders, it was God who was working in him to will and to work for God's good pleasure and glory. All by grace. He continues in 8. Henceforth now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, that's the righteous judge from verse 1, who's going to return to judge the living and the dead. The righteous judge will award to me on that Day, which is the day of his appearing from verse 1. Do you see how it's been kind of bookended? And not only to me, Paul writes, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The reward, the crown that Paul speaks of, he writes in the Greek, it is a stephanos. It is not a diadema. It is a trophy-like crown. It is not a kingly crown. That only sits on one. It's a trophy-like crown. In keeping with the athletic metaphor of finishing the race, Paul's reward and all of our reward will be as if we have won first place. But I want you to understand that it was not our running that earned us first place. Because as we go back through this text and we, we think about the itching ears and following our passions into myths and accumulating for ourselves subject material and teachers to tell us what we want to hear, we have royally, even the best of us, screwed this up. We have not cherished the scriptures as we ought. We've not preached them. We've not been believing perfectly that they are God's inspired word and living every iota of our lives accordingly. But it was Christ. It was Christ who perfectly armed himself in the word of God. If we were to go back through the Gospels, he is always quoting the scriptures, saturated in them, only speaking that which he heard the Father speak and only doing that which he saw the Father do. It was Christ who never gave in to itching ears. He never wandered off into myths like we have. He never derailed from his mission. It was Christ who perfectly fought the good fight, who perfectly finished the race. It was Christ who during his entire life was selflessly passing the torch of the kingdom and the gospel to others as we ought to be doing. It was Christ who, for the, for, who endured the fullness of suffering though he despised it. It was Christ who for the joy of saving his people, he faced the cross. And he was crucified for the sins of his people. It was Christ who, after raising to life three days later, is now once again crowned with the diadema of his own righteousness as the King of kings and Lord of lords, who now crowns Paul and who crowned Timothy and who will one day crown us, those of us who believe 
by faith that he, in his perfect life, accomplished everything that we needed and in his perfect death and resurrection paid for the penalty of our rebellion against him. Our award is Christ's righteousness, the first place prize of having run as if we had run like Christ, but we have not. That's the definition of grace right there. Hallelujah for that. And oh, what a glorious day it will be when we see this Christ, our King, face to face. Only in the meantime, only the word of God is able to guide us and equip us and preserve us by the power of the Holy Spirit until Christ's glorious return. And so church, can we please commit together by the grace of God to preach it and to prize it and to ask for protection against our fleshly passions and itching ears that would otherwise lead us off into myths. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to invite my brother, Mark Petrus, to come forward, and uh, we're going to be led into a time of communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, whose perfect life exemplified what reliance and prizing of the word looks like. God, forgive us for the fact that we often live our lives as if this word is really not your word. Oh, God, I pray that you would ignite a fire in us, God, that we would be given a new passion for your word, that, Lord, we would preach it and prize it for your glory and our joy in Jesus. Amen.